thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we are uh, continuing our study of the book of Numbers. We are going to cover tonight chapters 26 through 28. And we're going to talk about the census that happens in chapter 26. Particularly we'll look at the directions given for taking the census, the results. And talk a little bit more about the Kohorite rebellion. Then... In chapter um, 26, we'll look at the 70 clans very briefly. We'll talk about the, the Levites. And then in chapter 27, we'll address the law of succession and inheritance. And then we'll talk about the calendar of public sacrifice in chapter 28. In, as, in, from a question of context... The Israelites are at the door of the promised land. They're about to enter. And in these three chapters, first, if you recall from last time, the, um, the Moabite women invited the Israelite men to worship with them. And they did, which was against God's will. And scripture says Israel played the harlot, which is the uh, prototypical expression used to indicate a state in which Israel is not faithful to the Lord. As a result of that, there was a plague, and 24,000 people died. Now, God is reminding them that since, in, pro in the process of staying the plague, a Moabite princess was killed, War is imminent with Moab. Therefore, the chapter for the census serves to prepare them for the war that is to come. Beyond that, there is a question of succession that is going to be addressed in two ways. One, a group of women come to Moses and says, Our father had no sons. We would like to receive his inheritance. And Moses will bring that up to the Lord. And then there is the question of the succession of Moses, where God indicates to him that Joshua will take on. He will be the one leading Israel into the promised land. And then finally, chapter 28, there is a recapitulation or an, a revisiting of the public worship of Israel. And before we get into the details, this... Chapter 28 is 
crucial. It's crucial for us. And I want to one more time highlight that point because it is not easy for us to truly grasp it. If you can grasp that one point, you'd have understood the mission of Jesus Christ. You would have understood the purpose of your own lives. You would have understood what God expects of you if you just understood this one chapter. So I want to stress that point one more time. We've done it before, but it's important to repeat it. Chapter 28 is a chapter dedicated to the public worship of Israel. God instructs Moses, who will instruct Israel on all their feasts. There is a liturgical calendar that covers the entire year for Israel, just as there is a liturgical calendar that covers the entire year for the church. They are at the door of the promised land, and they are at a point where they must go into war. If you were preparing your children to face an enemy, to go to war, do you then, before you send them over, sit them down and get them to memorize the liturgical year? Do you see how incongruous this is, the placement of that chapter? You would think that God would wait for them to enter the promised land, to settle down, and once everything is taken care of, then we'll come and talk about the liturgical year. Instead, it is done right there and then. Why do you think this is the case? Why is God insistent on this liturgical year. This is not the first time we've seen the liturgy. We've seen it in Deuteronomy. I mean, I'm sorry, we've seen it in, in uh, Exodus. We've seen it in Numbers, initially when they were setting up the camp, how they were supposed to worship. We've seen it numerous times. It is a predominant theme across the entire book because every time Israel commits a sin, there is a risk of a plague that comes from the tent, from the tabernacle. It is the source of their blessing, of their protection, of their guidance. Why is God so insistent on explaining to them one more time how they are going to worship? That's a central question that we need to really understand. You see, the problem... The challenge, the difficulty for us is that we tend to approach land from a worldly perspective. We approach it the way men approach it. Approach it, approach it. When we think of possession of a piece of land, what are we thinking of? What comes to mind? To settle down. Inheritance. Pardon? Power. What do you see on that piece of land? Physically speaking, a house, right? Yeah. You see a house, you may see a vineyard, you may see a farm, you may see things of that nature, right? Okay. Settling down. 
All of these things are good. There's absolutely nothing wrong with them. The problem is that they become the final good. When they become the final good, the purpose of our lives, we cease to understand why they are a good. You see, if you were a miner, if you were a gold digger, and you're going up the mountain to find gold, and you came up a river and did a little bit of stone digging, and you washed some stone and you found nuggets of gold, a few of them, a handful, would you, would you rejoice? Would you be happy? Why are you happy? No, no, be, be very specific. Why finding these few nuggets of gold make you happy? There is more. So the few nuggets of gold are what, therefore? They're good. They're definitely good, right? But they're assigned to what? To the real good, right? Land, homes, vineyard, farms are like these nuggets of gold. They are a sign to something far greater. Problem is, we settle for the sign. What do I mean by this? Back to the question. Why is God so insistent on telling them about the liturgical cycle? Why is God bringing them to the promised land? Say that again? To worship Him. See, even when we say that, it just does not connect. Hold on. It doesn't connect. Because the way we slot that in our list of to-dos is, yeah, we're going to have a land, and there's a vineyard, and there's a home, and there's this and then the other. Oh, yes, and then we worship God. You see? It's way down there somewhere in our priorities. No, no, no. Let's back up and, again, repeat what was just said. God is giving them the piece of land for? Okay, let's be more specific. For, primarily for worship. The sole reason why He's giving them this land is for worship. I'd be even more emphatic. The only reason He's giving them this land is worship. The proof is in the pudding. Is the land of Israel more fertile or richer than Goshen and Egypt? It's not. Goshen was a better physical land. You get it? If all he wanted to do is give them a land for them to live off materially, they had that and they were very happy with it as they complained unceasingly all along the journey. Let's go back to Egypt. The only reason why he's giving them a land that is not, physically speaking, the best of lands, is for worship. Okay. Let's understand that. Why? So, so the land is a good, right? And it's a good good. I mean, it's a good thing to have. Yes? All right. Is life a good? 
And it's a good good, right? It's a good thing to be alive. What is the purpose of your life? That's it. Worship. This is it. You exist to worship. And your worship is not individual. It is communal. This is the reason why you exist. You don't exist to show others how strong you are, how rich you are, how powerful you are, how smart you are, how beautiful you are. You don't exist to brag about all these things which are passing. Because you'd be like somebody who just found a handful of gold nuggets and he's bragging about those when there is a mine way behind him full of gold. It's vain to brag about any of those things because you're bragging about something that is passing. You exist to worship. Now we need to take that one, one step further. We need to take that one step further. The difficulty, the challenge in what I'm telling you is that usually... For 90% of the people who worship, worship is not a pleasant experience. Most people derive more pleasure from eating an ice cream than from going to a mass. I'm talking about sensitive pleasure. Things you can taste, see, smell, feel. Most people enjoy a show more than enjoy mass. Yes? So, why is it then that God, who is all-loving, would make, it, would make us so that we can worship when worship doesn't seem to be as enjoyable as what's out there? Yes. So, the answer, the, the answer that's, a, that's a correct answer, which is that it's a... It's a God is far more pleased when we worship Him than when we do anything else. You can go feed all the hungry people in Africa. You would not please Him as much as if you were to come to Mass and pray. As simple as that. That's the simple truth. Okay? Yes, but that's a penultimate truth. It's not the final truth. We've looked at it from God's perspective. But is it just that God wants to have His own glory? Is, is He getting something out of this? When we worship Him, we glorify Him. Is He getting something out of this? Are, can we give God something God didn't have before He created us? No. So, why worship? Here's why. God is inviting us to live the life of the Trinity. He wants to turn us into divine beings. This is the process of divinization you've heard me talk about a number of times. We use, more commonly, the notion of supernatural life. The two are synonymous. When you hear me say, God wants to divinize us, it does not mean God is going to change our nature from human to divine. 
but he's going to empower our nature to become as much as possible like his and be able to partake from his own life, the life of the Trinity. We will live, so to speak, in the heart of the Trinity and see things the way the Trinity sees them. When you conceive of the Trinity, when you try to think of the Trinity, there is a Father, there is a Son, and there is the Holy Spirit. The Father gives everything He is to His Son, not what He has, what He is. It's a level of being. The Son reciprocates that love and gives back everything He is to the Father. And that exchange of love, that glorying in in their love, is the Holy Spirit the third person of the Most Holy Trinity. What is to give everything you are to God? How would you call that? Worship. That's what worship is. In its truest sense, is to give yourself to God. That's your worship. Now somebody just said, right, for I want to give my sins. Remember, sin is not a thing. A sin is not a thing. Right? Sin is actually the lack of a thing. It's the lack of good. So those who sin don't have something. They're lacking something. And the more you sin, the less you exist. You become hollow. You become empty. These expressions, you find them today in this generation. Empty shell. I'm hollow. I don't have a sense that I really... I exist, I'm light. There's different types of way of expressing this existential angst. When sin eats at you, it makes you hollow. Why? Because God is the one who is. God is the plenitude of existence. And the closer we are united to God, the more we have a sense of our existence. And what is happiness? Happiness is to fully exist. That's what happiness is. How do you know that? When somebody said, happiness is to do what you love with a person you love in a place that you love. Now, I don't know if that's the right definition of what happiness is, but there is a truth to what is being said here in that you have a sense of existence that is multifaceted in your relationship, in your activity, in your location. Love encompasses all, therefore you have a sense of completeness. That's what happiness is. And the closer you're united to God, the closer that happiness becomes an abiding truth in your heart. That can happen only through worship. Man isn't just an intellectual being. Man is a spiritual being. And the purpose of our lives is worship. This is the truth that our ancestors in the Catholic faith, knew all about. They understood, in a, perhaps uh, in a more um, intuitive way, the gift of the church, which we have lost. The biggest, the biggest sin of Catholics is to put the church beneath a set of other values. And you name them. Each has their own particularly nationality. I'm an American and a Catholic. No, 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 you're not. You're a Catholic who happens to be an American. That's temporary. 
But being Catholic is eternal. Above skin color. Oh, he's black. Hell is full of white people. Of creed. Of gender. You see, it's an impure way of living when you have these types of prejudice in your heart. Because fundamentally, the one thing you should rejoice, the one thing that should give you peace of mind and heart is the fact that you are a Catholic. Nothing else matters. Nothing else counts. The only reality that will remain is that you are a Catholic. Because that's the citizenship of heaven. In heaven, there is only the Catholic Church. There is nothing else besides the Catholic Church. Every angel is Catholic. And every citizen of heaven is Catholic. There's nothing else. That is the eternal citizenship. That is the kingdom that will have no end. And you are now members of it. That is the most important truth in your life. But you don't show it just because you bear the name. You show it how? By your worship. The way you worship. The way you live the Mass. The way you think about the Mass. The way that the Mass has its central importance in your lives. Show your true citizenship. And everything else that follows, right? We said it multiple times. The liturgical life is connected to your spiritual life, which is connected to your moral life. If you're not growing in the virtues, your worship and your spiritual lives are dead. It is your growth and your virtues, that sh- which are the fruits of your worship. Because your virtues is turning you, is conforming you more and more into another Christ. That's what's making you an heir or a co-heir to Christ in the love of the Father. That's key. That's what God gave them the promised land for worship. He told them, you are a kingdom of priests, not warriors, a kingdom of priests for worship. You see, We are made to worship because in worshiping, we exist. In worshiping, we become part of the life of the Trinity. In worshiping, we are stepping into heaven. And yes, it's a battle for us. Because, and that's what scripture is showing us, of original sin, the effect of original sin in our lives. We, remember that, our fallen nature is rebellious. Our fallen nature rejoices more outside the church than in the church. And that's where the life of grace, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and our seeking of the truth changes us. Change us day after day and make us true children of God. See, if you can just internalize this truth and reorient your entire life around that single fact, you are 
a worshipping animal. Not an not a intellectual animal. Not just an Yes, there is an animal part of us. This is who we are. We're, we are part of the animal kingdom. But we are made for worship. And the highest possible level of worship is the Eucharist. This is what we're made for. This is the purpose of our life. This is why we exist. That's the standard by which you should measure your success. Not how much money you make. Not how, not how, much, how well you're known. Not how successful is your business. Simply, how do you worship? That's the key. Do you understand? And that explains why we see these recurrent themes that God gives them continuously on the practices of worship that He expects of them. And... He not only expects them to worship right, but to worship at the right time. And offer the sacrifices at the right time. So conformance to the way we must worship in the church is part of the excellence of worship. If they came to the temple and offered the, right, the wrong numbers of bulls, rams, sheep, and, um, and uh, the other types of animals, their worship was not acceptable. God did not leave them with any choices on how to worship. Why? Because worship is about the life of heaven. Now, uh, those of you who've been to heaven and back, to tell us how it happens up there, please stand. Well, if you've not been there, then please do not presume to know how worship is done. We don't know. The church knows. These mysteries have not been revealed to us. They've been revealed to the church. So we do as the church says. So I, I'm, again, I'm insisting on this point because this is a central theme in all of Scripture. These, you know, these three axes is the the axis of worship is central. It's the trunk that carries everything. Then out of that, there are these two main branches. There's the spiritual aspect. How must you personally now interact with God outside of the communal worship? That is essential. And then the other branch is, how must you interact with others? These are all your virtues. So you ought to be like this tree who is bearing much fruit on the spiritual side and on the moral side. And fruits aren't measured by physical results. They're not measured by how much, um, how much money you gave or, uh, or how much work you've done outside or how many Bible studies you've taught. They're measured by your inner Desire to be united to God according to His will. And your conformity to His will by continuously mortifying yourself so that you could excel in your virtues. And I've told you that many times before. If you are unable to obey, if you're unable to say you're sorry, especially when someone comes at you and you haven't done anything wrong, if you can't say I'm sorry... If you spend your life critiquing, 
If you spend your life explaining, defending yourself, justifying yourself, being a burden on others because you need to justify yourself, you're not growing in virtue. Very simple pointers, but they're so essential. Life is a gift. And all we've got is now. Now to exercise those virtues. Every moment God sends us His gifts to us for us to exercise those virtues, to practice the spiritual self-denial, to be united to Him. Don't waste those occasions. They're so precious. So in chapter 26 then, he gives them a census. Now, it's a long chapter, and they go through a number of tribes. There's 70 tribes. The, the reason why there were 70 tribes is because Israel, when Jacob went down to Egypt, 70 people went into Egypt. And now, as they're ready to go back into the promised land, 70 tribes are coming back in. That's an indication of fruitfulness, of blessing. Who is the source of this blessing? Abraham. Abraham. When he brought him out and said, count the stars, this is how numerous your descendants shall be. Right? So that's the beginning of that fruitfulness that is attributed to the faith of Abraham. The whole stay in the wilderness is bracketed with two senses. You remember the first one? When God asked Moses, commanded Moses to make a census to figure out how the tribes are going to be structured around the tent. And now there is a second census. The first one was really for liturgical reason. This one is for military reason. And in both cases, it is God who commands the census to take place. In the first, the list enumerates the tribal clan, whereas... I'm sorry, the, the, the tribes, whereas here it is the clans that are being enumerated. And it's really for the purpose of indicating this fruitfulness of Abraham that I just told you about. It is interesting also to note that the existence of two types of census for war and for land is duplicated in the Mari archive, dating to the turn of the 19th century before Christ. So the Mari archive, which, which talks, uh, I think, about the Assyrian and Babylonian regime, that also indicate how the censuses were done either for land, you apportion things by land, uh, by number for land, or for war. So it's a common uh, way of actually conducting a census. The interesting thing is that when we compare this census to the first, the first one in the Book of Numbers, you notice that the major change is the decline in Simeon and the increase in Manasseh. And... And obviously, what is that indicating is that God is blessing Manasseh over Simeon. And effectively, Simeon will end up being completely absorbed by Judah. The land now will be apportioned to every tribe, geographically, but also according to their numbers. So the bigger the tribe, the bigger the portion of land that goes to them. And it makes sense, right? Now, the Korahite clan, remember Korah, the man who rebelled against uh, Moses? who was a Levite, and he was swallowed by the earth with his family. Not all the Korite died. The, the clan as such survived. And in fact, they will become the um, responsible for the music of the temple. So they will become musicians in the temple in Jerusalem later. That will not be obviously priests, but that, that's the role that they will play. 
Um, and you, for instance, you can see that their name, the name of Korah appears in the titles of Psalms 42, 44 through 49, 84, 85, 87. And they also played the role of temple guards in 1 Chronicle 9, uh, 19. There is a very interesting thing about the Manassites because Manasseh has a sizable Canaanite element in it. In other words, within the tribe of Manasseh, there are folks who are of Canaan background. Remember the Canaanites who were cursed? Where a bunch of those have actually joined Manasseh. Caleb, if you remember, recall Joshua and Caleb, right? The two who remained faithful from the scouts. He is of a Canaanite, Canaanite background. And, and Caleb, because he is not an Israelite, receives inheritance, he receives inheritance by divine decree. And that's an honor that is not even accorded to Joshua. So already, notice, in God's perception, it mattered less if you were of Jewish stock than if you were a faithful Israelite. It, he was not, God was never really interested in pure biological descendants. What he's interested in is the Israelite of the heart, the one who is seeking after him. And so Caleb is a perfect example of one who was not of the blood of Abraham, yet was incorporated into Israel by divine decree because he received an inheritance in the land, even though, again, he was from the Canaanite line, which was cursed by uh, Noah. So you see how even someone who comes from the slime, provided he worships God and seeks Him, even that curse is annulled. That is the power of worship. All right, I told you about the way the land was being allotted. The location is specified, and it's also the number of the people in a particular tribe that determines the size. So children are a blessing in another way. They're a blessing economically. Right? They're a blessing in power. So that's the extension of the blessing given to children that would rather than come with children. The Levites do not receive land. See, that's very interesting. The Levites are the priests, or rather... Among them, you will find the priests. But they're all dedicated to the service of God in His temple. Therefore, because they are God's portion, they do not receive land. Think about that for a second. If land was the ultimate goal, if God was giving them the promised land for land, why would He take it away from those who serve Him in His temple. He requires more of them than of those who are non-Levites. So you can see that in His view, the land is there to serve the worship, not as an ultimate end. And, and that's fundamentally the tragedy that we have today in the Middle East. It is based off a fundamentally wrong understanding of the covenant. Without worship, the land is worthless, meaningless. 
It is worship that was the heart of it. But once the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, once that the temple was destroyed and the church was raised, the whole world become the promised land. The whole world becomes what? An altar. That's why in Jewish theology, the earth had four corners. Not because the earth was flat, but because the earth was conceived as an altar of sacrifice. The whole earth is an altar. Hence, the whole earth becomes a place of worship. That's the ultimate meaning. This is what the church is all about. You see? And it is very interesting and tragic at the same time that so many Protestants today are still convinced that the second temple, the temple will be rebuilt. And once the temple is rebuilt, it's going to announce the coming of Jesus. Which is complete nonsense. The temple has been rebuilt long ago. It's called the Catholic Church. Jesus came and comes every Sunday. And if God has mercy on on the Jews, He will never allow that second temple to be rebuilt. Because the second, the, the, the new covenant has taken over the old. And God will not allow the old to exist when the new is here. Forever. The old was provisional. The new is eternal. You can see how at the heart of one of the thorniest conflict in the world resides a theological misunderstanding. It isn't political. It is theological. It's a misunderstanding of who we are and what God has intended for us. All right. Now, in chapter 27, remember I told you God has a real soft um, spot for women? And you see it right here. This is a beautiful chapter. Then drew the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest, remember who's now the high priest, right, Eleazar, uh, and before the leaders and all the congregation at the door of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. So they're indicating that he was not one of the rebellious ones. He didn't rebel against God. He died because of his own sins. Meaning what? Meaning that when God uh, told them to, to move into the, the, the promised lands, they refused, they were afraid because of the giants, when he was one of them. So he's one of the old generation who died. And notice how they say it. He died for his own sin. I mean, look how, I mean, it's refreshing to hear, uh, to hear someone speaking the truth. They're not here elogizing their father, how wonderful he was. He died for his own sin. Okay? So, Notice how these women speak. They speak the truth and they speak directly. And then they added, Why should the name of our father be taken away from his family because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brethren. So 
they make their request directly. And notice, none of the men are outraged. None of the men try to silence these women. None of the men tell them, how dare you speak? doesn't even come across any of the, these guys' mind to tell the women not to speak. Moses simply said, Moses said, okay, I'm bringing your case to the Lord. And that's, it. that's all he said. No one else, none of the elders complained. So the notion that you had this patriarchal society that is domineering and wanting to keep the women, it just doesn't play out in history and in Scripture. It's, just, it's not true. The daughters of Zelophehad are right. Now, how many times have you heard the Lord say that about anybody? How many times have you heard the Lord say that about any of the guys? They're right. So notice, here are women who came, they were faithful, and they made their request to the Lord directly and simply. No shenanigans, no, who are you Moses to do this and then the other, right? You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brethren and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. And you shall say to the people of Israel, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause the, his inheritance to pass to his daughter. And the, so the whole lineage of inheritance through the women is established by God. Okay? The key is that once it is given to the daughter of Zelophehad, if her son, so if, if let's say she marries, it remains in her house, on the side of her father. It doesn't go out. So there are many cases where, in fact, the son-in-law took on the name of his father-in-law. So the inheritance continued within the house of the father, and it passes through the woman back into that line, never going out. So the whole line, therefore, is given because of these women who come to the Lord and make their cause known to him directly. And God does not spurn them, but actually give them what they ask for. So, then after that, there is the case of Moses. And God tells him, and I, I suggest you read that if you haven't read it yet, that because of what you, because you rebelled against me, you will not enter the Holy Land. You go up the mountain and see it, and now appoint someone to replace you. And so Moses, and, and actually Moses makes the case to God that we should appoint someone to replace me. And then Moses says that he should be given the same powers that I've received. Notice, Moses is not about power grab here. He's not trying to say, well, you know, I'm the best, I'm the greatest, I'm number one, that should be number two, but he can't be equal to me. He says, no, transfer all my powers over to him, but God refuses. God refuses. And, only, and Moses can, only, can give Joshua only a part of his, of his power, not all of his power. Okay, that says that in God's eyes, Moses was really unique. Right? But, uh, and then he uses this expression so that your, your, the, your people may not be like sheep without a shepherd, which will be said again about David, who will be a shepherd to his people, and Jesus will use that continuously. So Jesus is compared to David because of that image, being the sheep of the shepherd, but behind David, there's Moses. So it is not just David, it is a combination of Moses, the prophet, David, the king. right? And Jesus being both. Both prophet, king, and then priest. Alright. So, that's the, um, that is the key that um, 
I, I wanted to bring to your attention when it came to this uh, inheritance. The, the women come to God and they make their request and it is satisfied. In contrast, Moses is told, is, reminded of, is being reminded of his sins. And he is told that he can appoint someone to replace him, but he will not receive the same power as he does. So you can see that God is extremely jealous. And God can be offended. We can offend God. So it must be always on your mind, am I offending God? Is my behavior offensive to God? You start uh, swearing. You're offensive to God. You, uh, you look at someone, let's say an African American, and you entertain ideas of superiority in your mind about that person. You're offensive to God. Right? And I, again, I have to remind you of this because it's very important. Your son or your daughter come home with an African-American girl or man and you tell your son or your daughter that you're going to disown them or you don't recognize them or any of that stuff when in fact they're bringing a godly Catholic uh, human being into your house, you've committed a mortal sin. Because you're telling God, we know better than you do. And there are not going to be black people in my home. That's offensive to God. Now, granted, many of us come from cultural backgrounds which are impure. There's these prejudice built into it and we've inherited them as we went. Understood. You're not to blame for this. But you are to blame for what you do with them. If you go against the dignity of the human being, if you go against God's love, you're offensive to God. You cannot do those things. We have to be understanding that in heaven there are only Catholics. So be one. Universal. That's what Catholicism means. Universal. Doesn't count whether you're Phrygian or a Syrian or a Greek or St. Paul, right? The only thing that matters is how you worship God. That's what counts. So we, you need to work through these. You need the gift of purity. You see, what is impure? Impure is when you do not see something, or rather, when you see something imperfectly. St. Augustine. When you see something for less what it really is, for, for, for less it's worth, that's impure. So, for instance, you see a woman walking by, and you have lustful ideas. You want to use her as an object, that's impure, because you reduced her to less than what she is. Yeah? Likewise, you see an African-American walking by and you have these thoughts that come to your mind which are um, against him or, or you don't want him to get into your house or whatever. And I'm not talking about... Uh, I'm, I'm just talking about a, um, a respectable man walking down the street ha- just happens to be um, uh, of a dark skin. Well, when you do that, you're being impure because you're seeing him for less than what he is. Yeah? So you need to purify your heart. Now, all of us suffer from these things, particularly when it comes to food. Right? We tend to have a very impure relationship with food. 
We think the purpose of food is to stuff ourselves. Right? And on and on it goes. The purpose is to amend our lives and purify our heart. And it happens slowly. God will make it happen. Right? God will make it happen. We need to do that. Or you have other thoughts like, oh, the Jews run the world. That's an impure thought. The only one who runs the world is God. And if he likes to do it through Jews, it's his choice. It's an impure thought. You can't be a Catholic and entertain these thoughts in your mind. All Muslims are terrorists. They should all die. That's an impure thought. And on and on it goes. You need to ask the Holy Spirit to purify your thoughts. You can't do it on your own, but the Holy Spirit will certainly do it for you. Because you must be perfect the way your Heavenly Father is perfect. Yeah? All right. And then, as I said, in chapter 28, he, go, he goes through the entire liturgical cycle. I can't, obviously, cover it up now. I've done it multi- multiple times. I have actually a series on the temple and on the liturgy of the temple. If you're interested, you can always go take a look at that. The one thing I want to bring to your attention, though, is the sacrifices. So, when it comes to sacrifices, there are daily sacrifices. No, I, I have a table here. I've tabulated this, actually. There's a daily sacrifice. So, two... Two lambs a day must be sacrificed every day. That's 780, if you assume 365 days, right? 780 lambs a year being sacrificed. Then there is the, um, the Sabbath. You have two. So on every Sabbath, now there are four lambs being sacrificed. Then on each new moon, seven lambs, uh, one ram, one bull, one sheep. That's 132 a year. Each day of unleavened bread, seven lambs, one ram, two bulls, one. All right. And on and on it goes. When you total the whole thing, it's about 12, it's 1,773. 1,773 animals being sacrificed every year. For the purpose of the liturgy. Yes. Some do, some don't. Some are burnt offerings, some are... Yeah. But they don't, the priests do. Most of the time. These are sacrifices which are part of the liturgy. This is separate from the sacrifices that people bring to the temple for personal use. Well, it depends at what point, right? But in the time of Jesus, you can count on them being at least 2 million people. At the time... Again, it's debated. It is debated. Because depending on how you counted, you can end up with 600,000 men in the desert. Not counting the women. So if you count everybody, you're probably 1.5 million. Which is problematic, especially if you consider the um, census from other civilizations around them. None of the others reach these types of numbers. So there is a question as to whether Aleph means 1,000 or means really a um, more like of a group, in which case you can pare the numbers down. But it's an unresolved problem. Uh, there is no consensus over how to really recognize this. 
right? My point to you is, number one, observe, we have daily mass. They had a daily sacrifice. Twice a day, they had to sacrifice. You can, go to commu- you, can, you can go to mass and receive communion twice a day, at most. You can't receive it more than that. Okay? We take a lot of our liturgy from the temple, from the tent, from what God had commanded. The sacrifice is the same, but the difference now is that it's a most excellent sacrifice. It is the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is made present on our altars. You know that when we say it's a sacrifice of the Mass, we're not killing Jesus again. Okay? We are making present, but let's be very clear. We're not making present God to us. Okay? God is the ever-present. We're making ourselves present to the moment when He was sacrificed. It's almost like time travel. You understand? It's the way for Him to make His one and only sacrifice present for all times and all space. That's what Mass is. But the sacrif- so therefore, you don't need seven rams, one bull, and all these. You don't need all these animals. God never really delighted in any of this. He allowed them to go through it because this is what they were used to do. Remember, Scripture is not the perfect code of conduct. It is the relationship of God with imperfect people. In fact, the proof is that in that census, you can go back and read it, one of the, um, one of the followers of Caleb is married to his aunt. His mom's sister. Okay, it's obviously an incestuous relationship, but they were married in Egypt before the laws against incest were given. Right? God, through Moses, doesn't tell them, okay, break it up. He doesn't do that. He allows that to remain, even though it is against his initial intent. Why? Because he is forbearing. Because he is patient and because he can only teach them as much as they can take. Scripture is not God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit speaking eternal truth for each one of them. Scripture is about the relationship of God to people in time, in history. People imperfect and sinful. You understand that? This is why it's such, an, it's such a hubris to say, all oh, I need is Scripture. By its very definition, Scripture is incomplete. It could not contain all the truths that God wished to communicate to us. Because God wants to communicate to us today His truths. So He does it through Scripture, but He does it through the church. The living church, His bride, our mother, our teacher. So, Think about being a Jew. Think about having to bring all these animals nonstop to the temple. What would you think the temple would smell of? Do you understand? It's really hard for us to conceive of this. But imagine outside, first of all, we would not be here in the church. None of us could enter the church. We would be outside, and outside there is a, a, uh, an altar that is raised, and there are these pipes going down into the ground to take all the blood 
and there are these uh, tables where the carcasses are being cut, and the priests are, are, are officiating barefoot, and their job is to slaughter the animals, skin them, break the parts, bring them to the altar, cook them on an ongoing basis. It's very difficult for us to even conceive of this because our conscience has been so Christianized, we cannot think of it anymore. But that's what it was. Jesus replaced all this with his most excellent sacrifice, his body, blood, soul, and divinity that he gives to us to divinize us, which these animals could never do. You understand? All right. So again, the key is this chapter 28. Worship. Read it. Go back home and read it. And put yourself, if you could, in sort of stand by God's side and watch Him tell Moses, this is what I want you to do. Read it slowly and see how God is very detailed. He's told, He, t- he tells them exactly what He wants, when He wants it, on which day. Hmm? One thing I would like to add to you, one more, what, what I said earlier about um, God works with our imperfection. Why does he ask them to, celeb- to sacrifice on every new moon? Because God loves the moon? Well, yeah, he loves the moon, that's true. But why does he ask them to sacrifice on every new moon? Why do you think? Because in many ancient civilizations, the moon was worshipped as a god. Right? And the new moon indicates the rebirth of this god. Therefore, there were many pagan celebrations done around the new moon. So God overlaps that with a true sacrifice to him. And it's very clear in that chapter, you sacrifice to me, not to the moon. All right? But he takes them where they are at, and he leads them to the truth. That's what he does with us. Many of us enter the church with misconceived notion about what is true and what is not true. God knows that. And He's forbearing and patient and kind and merciful. I know many Catholics who entered the church for quite some time and then didn't know, whoa, that going to Mass, missing Mass on a Sunday is a, is a, is a mortal sin. They didn't know that. God is patient because their intention is to worship Him. So slowly, slowly, He guides them and leads them and brings them to Him. Now, obviously, it could help Him quite a bit if they did a little study on their side. right? But He is patient and forbearing with those who truly seek Him. Because He loves them. Do you understand? So take heart if you have some difficulties or you have some sins you've been working through. God is patient. He will perfect you despite your weaknesses, as long as you seek Him with all your heart. Yeah? So we'll, um, we'll finish with a word of prayer, and then we'll take some questions. All right, questions. Yes. So th- there is one census which prepares them to go to war, and a second one for the land possession. That's why. Oh, you, you, you don't necessarily get something out of that particular census, the way it was conducted, other than the fact that God is the one who's, who numbers people. And there is strength in number. There's blessings in number. Both, both censuses, right? For the war and for the land. 
So it, that's essentially the message for us. He's the one who prepares his people. He's with them. And he is the one who asks to number people. Right? And that he will um, apportion the land according to the blessing he gave you. That's essentially what we can get out of it. Yeah? Yes. Oh, the question is, how did Moses disobey God? Uh, God had told Moses when the Israelites complained that they were thirsty, he told Moses to speak to the rock. And instead, Moses hit the rock twice. And also said to the people that he and Aaron will bring them water, not God. So for these two reasons, God told him, you will not enter the, whole, the, the promised land. But he doesn't die right away because there's the Deuteronomy where he actually has to give them the testament. So it happens a little later, right? But uh, remember that foreknowledge of our moment of death is a great grace that God can give us. Because then foreknowledge of our death is a great grace. It's a privilege, rare, that God gives us. If he were to tell you, next week you're going to die, it's a huge grace. Now, he does give it, by the way, to a lot of people indirectly by means of sickness. When somebody knows they have a terminal illness, it's a great grace. Because God is telling them, now's the time to get ready. Also, for those of us who are going on in years, the older you get the more aware you are that the time is reckoning is going to be knocking. So prepare yourself. There is a man who every night would have facing his bed a board in which he, he, he would write, let's say his name was John Doe. It was John Doe born uh, the 6th of February 1952 and died and he would put the date of the day that he's in. And he would look at it from his bed. I'm, I'm, I'm going to die today. To help him do a really good examination of conscience. If I were to stand before Jesus right now. I mean, all of you actually. If you were to stand right now. If in five minutes a bomb is going to hit this church. And we're all dead. What would you tell him? Are you ready? Have you gone to confession this week? Are you going weekly to confession? Are you ready? Are you ready as much as you can be? You understand? Yeah, that's key. If you can think of death and smile, that's a grace. Correct. Yes, in everything you do, think of your death and you will not sin. Right? And uh, it always reminds me of uh, this uh, blessed Stephen, who was a monk, uh, a simple monk, but his motto was, God sees me. Everything he did, God sees me. Living in the constant presence of God. Right? If all of us were aware of the fact that as we're driving on the highway, God is sitting in the back seat watching us, or we're driving God somewhere, we might drive slightly differently. Right? God sees me. Yes. Absolutely. This is a very great question. And in the Old Testament, God is very specific about how he wants us to worship. Would it be fair to say that to please God, we worship in spirit, with our heart, and according to the rubric? Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you follow the rubric of the church, and you do it from your heart, God will take care of the rest. St. Hardini, 
who is the, the, the he was a, a professor of St. Charbel. He's over there in the back. Yeah, he was, in, in, he's a saint, he's canonized, but you know what he did? He wasn't like St. Charbel, a hermit, and, you know, St. Charbel ate only once a day, etc. St. Hardini did one thing only. He obeyed the monastic law perfectly. His brother was a hermit. His brother is not canonized, he is. He just obeyed the law of the monastic law perfectly. Because, you see, to obey perfectly means you're obeying out of love. You're obeying to please God and the church. You can't not please God when you do that for his bride. There's no way. So, yes, absolutely. It's a great grace you can do that. Yes. Okay, so the question is, can I recommend a book on confession? How do you know when to go? What to, what to confess? How do you know if you've committed a mortal sin? How do you know um, when not to take uh, communion, etc.? Two-part answer. Uh, part number one is, yes, I do have a book. I don't remember the title. So if you could uh, do me a favor and go on Corbono and use the feedback or the answer and put that question through, I'll bring the book with me next week. It's written by a priest. It's a great book uh, full of uh, anecdotes and examples on confession. And he clears a lot of questions regarding confession. The second, um, exam- daily examination of conscience. So you take the Ten Commandments, which you've memorized, I hope, by now. And if you haven't, you can talk to Lilian. She can actually help you memorize them, because she does that with all the children of the First Communion. And then you go through each one of them. Right? I am the Lord your God. You shall not have any other God before me. Did I have any other God before you today, Lord? And you ask your guardian angel to help you. And you're reviewing the events of your day. Honor your father and mother. Have you honored your father and mother? Do not speak. Right? And on and on. There are also other examinations of conscience you can get with a lot, a lot of questions. Just go through them. Right? So this is about how you help someone understand the benefit of confession. Well, yeah, that book, that book I told you about that I don't remember right now. Well, uh, yeah, this is a small, yeah, this is an examination of conscience. Absolutely, this is a good one. I, I lost mine. Practical Guide for the Sacrament of Confession. A small little, uh, you can get it from uh, Human Life International. Yeah, this is a pretty good one. Uh, this little, uh, uh, no, I'm going to have it then if you have this one. Because I don't have it. I lost mine. Thank you. Yes. Human Life International. This is a great one as a help for examination. Now, for your question, though, this blue book will explain to you. As to explaining to others, you, you're not going to be able to explain fully. Because remember, examination of conscience and the thinking about confession are only means. But what placed the love of confession in your heart is the Holy Spirit. That you cannot do. And I cannot do. So we can help remove obstacles. But we cannot on our own achieve this goal. It is the grace of God. Yeah? There are no Jews... You have Talmudic Jews, people who live by the Talmud, which is sort of the, the, the Torah plus all the commentaries that go with it. But that's not what Jewish Judaism is all about. There is no sacrifice. Right? So they make do whatever they can, but it, it just doesn't exist. Right? Besides, they, they don't, for most, of, most of them don't read the prophets. They, they, they don't have this uh, uh, Christian perception 
I don't understand. You know, for the Jews, God is not a father, right? They will not call him father the way we call him father. I mean, to them, to them this is anathema. You, you just cannot do that. Yes, figuratively, you can ascribe to him an image of a father or an image of a mother, right? But it's not as he is substantially a father. That is anathema, right? So, yeah, I mean, you have to pray for them, for, for their conversion, for that specific reason. Absolutely. Yes? Oh, no, the Orthodox share our belief in the transubstantiation, which is the transformation of the substance of the thing from bread and wine into the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. Amongst the Protestant, some think of it as a pure symbol, but to the Lutherans, it is consubstantiation. God is present alongside the element of bread and wine. How that, that had, I, don't, I can't even explain it, but that's what they believe. But it's not the Eucharist. Yes. Um, the High Anglicans, which they call themselves Catholic, actually, it's confusing, uh, have a similar belief, but they don't have the right orders. So in that case, it, uh, I think they do. I'm not really sure, but it doesn't really work uh, just as well. But however, with the new or, uh, uh, ordinary or the new uh, or rite that is being created for them, then they will have the, 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 full, the fullness of the Eucharist. Somebody else had a question here? Yes. No, 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 no. Hold on. Let's be very clear on the meaning pray for. We're using it differently. Okay. Okay. In English, when I say pray for, I am not, I don't mean to say, so if, if, if somebody comes and says, Johnny is sick, pray for him, that means I should direct my prayers for his sake. But in the litany, when I say pray for, when I am actually praying, and I'm not praying for them, for the saints. I am asking them to intercede on my behalf. You got it? Yeah. So I'm going to my real brothers and sisters, and I'm saying, you're, you're closer to God than I am. That's exactly it. The wasta, the, what he means by that is a, uh, is a bribe, right? Yeah. The notion of a bribe, right? You're just going to try to bribe the saints to pray for you, right? But in a sense, the reason why, if you actually ask that intercession, you're increasing their accidental glory. Their glory grow in heaven, grows in heaven. So uh, there is a truth to this element that saints that are being, who, who, who receive our prayers or are the conduit for um, intercession, right? if indeed they go presented to God and God um, grant their request, their glory is increased. I mean, I don't do it for that reason. Don't get me wrong. It's not, but, but there is this principle behind it. So, yes, no, we're going to them asking them. We're saying we're, we are not pure enough. We're not holy enough. We are sinful people. So we know we cannot... Uh, we cannot be in the presence of God. We're not worthy. You are. Please intercede for me. Yes. Ah, the question is, uh, Moses appealed to the people before God. Why didn't he do the same thing for himself? Because, a very simple reason, you only appeal in truth. Yes? So when Moses appealed to God for the people, he called upon the truth. He told God, you established a covenant with Abraham. What are our nation say? That you actually are not truthful to yourself? 
That cannot be, Lord. Therefore, spare the people. He's speaking the truth. Now, when he committed that sin, what is he going to say? Lord, I didn't commit that sin. That's a lie. What is there to appeal? God knows everything he knows, and he knows everything that God knows in that particular instance. There's nothing to appeal for. Pardon? That's difference. That's prayer. It's not appealing for mercy. It's, a, it's praying for God's mercy upon him. Now remember, God raised him as a saint. Right? But uh, that's why his, his punishment was temporal. Right? You will not enter the, the promised land, but then you'll enter my, my house in heaven. Right? That's not bad as far as goes. So God was very lenient on him. I don't know if, God, if Moses knew. I mean, we don't know that. But my point is, you can only appeal with the truth. Yeah? And when you've sinned, the only thing you can say is, Lord, I have sinned. That's the only thing you can say, right? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely, yes. Yes, we receive God's grace. We are fed as His children. And because of what we eat, the world receives the crumbs. That is, the things that we can bring over. Because whatever grace we can bring through our own means is small compared to the grace of the Eucharist on the table. That's why it's called the crumbs. You understand? So yes, we go and minister to the world. My point that I was trying to make is that it doesn't matter if you're worshiping in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, in Iraq, in the United States. It doesn't matter. It's all a land for grab for the church. In the sense that Every nation must be discipled. Jesus, in the, in, the, in the closing part of the Gospel of St. Matthew, go forth and make disciples of all nations. The nations themselves must be discipled. The nations are to become Catholic because they're now all part of, the, of Canaan that the church will take on. You understand? That's what I was trying to say. Yes. Okay, um, all right. The, the church is not one thing. So, are we the church? Well, we're part of the church, right? Because the church is the church militant, the church suffering, the church triumphant, with all the saints and all the angels. This is the totality of the believers in the church. Hold on, we're not the church. In the creed we say, I believe in the Catholic Church. It's an act of faith. I don't need an act of faith if it was just a group of people. You understand? The Church is the Bride of Christ. The mystical person of the Church transcends all of us put together. Yeah? So we have to be careful. No, no. There is no as a whole and as a part. The church is a mystical being. We belong to her. We are her children. All of us are in her, but we're not her. But all of us together, all the individuals together, do not make up the church. The church is still greater than us. Because she is a mystery. Not it, her. She's a person. We're members of the church. Yes. Let me, let me clarify it one more time. I know it's a difficult concept because it is really not easy to understand what the church is. The church is a mystical being. 
She is a person. She is the bride of Christ. The Holy Spirit abides in her. Yes? We are members of the church. But all of us put together, all the believers across time and space, all of us put together are not the church. All of us with the angels are not the church. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? The church is not just a group of people. I'm, I'm saying about believers. The church is not just the believers. That's a horizontal view of the church is. The church is a mystical being. It's a mystery we cannot fully understand. Right. Let me, get, let me put you this way. Suppose, suppose there was only Mary in the church. Suppose nobody else believed. Suppose everybody else went to hell. There's only Mary. Would there be something lacking in the church? Did, did you understand what I'm saying to you? Okay. All right, very good. But just reflect on this. If Mary was the only human being in the church, if there were no angels, the church would be complete. So we are part of the church. We are members of the church. We add to her glory, but the church is greater than all of us put together in, ways, in a way we just cannot fully understand because we have to believe, we have to assent to this truth about the church, which is beyond us. All right? Okay, last question. The church needs only Our Lady, and even, I mean, even there, you just have to wonder. But really, Our Lady is enough. Exactly. Yeah. So we, the, our numbers fundamentally add nothing to who the church is. You understand? We benefit from being part of her, but me being part of the church is not adding to who the substance of the church is. But my, the question is, in Revelation, God indicated that he's, he will let the number of the elect to be complete, right? In chapter 6, talking to the saints who are interceding, right? He's saying to them, I'm waiting. That was specifically to say that, in, in that specific instance, that there are a number of martyrs who are to die before he actually uh, acts um, on their death. But it has nothing to do about how uh, about the substance of the church is. It, it simply has something to do with how many of us are called to join her. Do you understand? So let's not confuse us with the church. There is a, there is a movement here called We Are the Church. And it's trying to reduce the church to us. To make the church horizontal. Right? Once you make the church horizontal, then it's a question of democracy. Then we can elect and we can do stuff. Exactly. The church is beyond that. It's, she's a mystical person we cannot fully understand. Yeah? All right. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.